All right, with that, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 4. We finished Colossians last week. We're going to start Philemon uh, next week. Uh, but I thought today we'd look at the Jordan Memorial from Joshua, chapter 4. Uh, there's some connection with what we'll see in Nahum tonight, in Nahum 1. Uh, so the memorial stones uh, in Joshua 4. So Joshua 4, <clears throat> I'll begin reading at verse 1. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from, uh, from here <clears throat> out of the midst of the Jordan, from a place where the priest uh, stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. So the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed over. Then it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over, the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared uh, for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him, as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel saying, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the, the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Amen. Well, let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, we confess we are so often forgetful of your great redemptive works. We are thankful for the work of Christ and him crucified. Thank you for what he did 2,000 years ago on that cross. 
bearing the wrath of God upon him in our stead. Thank you that he bore the penalty that we deserved upon him in our stead. Thank you that your wrath was poured out upon him. Thank you that the curse is removed. Thank you that we are reconciled to you. Thank you that we have communion with you because of Christ and what he has done. And so often, oh God, we forget this. So often we forget what Christ has done. And so may we be reminded each and every day and each and every week of Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. And may we also never forget what we once were and what we are now in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we never forget that great day of salvation that you wrought to many of your people in this room. May we remember your goodness. May we remember your greatness. May we remember your mighty work to save a wretch like us. And may that help us as we walk in this world to know that you are with us. You are mighty and you are strong and you are with us day by day. May we not be a forgetful people, but may we remember, may we recall, may we be reminded. And as we do so, and as we consider your might, may we fear you. May we trust in you. May we put our faith in you. And may we fear you and keep your commandments as your word says. So we pray that today would be a great day of encouragement for your people, that we would remember what you've done. Today would be the great day of salvation for your lost sheep. And we do pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, throughout God's word, many of the writers often tell the people of God to remember. Moses often said to the people of Israel, remember, do not forget, do not forget the commandments and do not forget what God has done. And remembrance is important for us in the Christian walk. And perhaps as we've read through our Bibles, we come to the Jordan crossing and we perhaps forget it more often than we should. Because you see, the Jordan crossing was a great event in the history of Israel, one that they were supposed to remember. So we should be reminded of it. I know we did it a couple weeks ago uh, in our Wednesday night studies, but you probably forgot what I said, and I forgot probably what I said. So it's good for us to be reminded about this Jordan crossing and what the Lord God had done for the people by bringing them into the promised land. Now, Joshua is a historical book, but it's also called a former prophet. Uh, It speaks to us. It's not just history. It's God's redemptive works. It's God's redemptive acts. And we must uh, recognize what he is doing in his word. It's also called the Deuteronomistic history. What that means, it's based on Deuteronomy. God entered into covenant with the people of Israel. He laid out in full how they ought to live in the land that God is giving to them in the book of Deuteronomy. And the history then is built upon that. If Israel does what was right, blessings in the land. If Israel does what's wrong, there is going to be curse in that land. It was a covenant of works for the people of God concerning life in the land. Now, Joshua is positive for the most part. The people seem to do pretty good, although there's hiccups along the way. Uh, But Judges is very bad. Samuel's not great, although I know David's there. Solomon's okay. And then the kings, there's many bad kings. So things are not so good uh, based upon that Deuteronomic covenant. But Joshua is positive. And Joshua does give us a thesis or main idea in its book. In Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45, it highlights how God fulfilled all the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has finally brought the people into the promised land after 400 years. So it's a great day of rejoicing, a great reminder of God's covenant faithfulness as the people cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land. 
And we can divide Joshua in four ways. It's from Dale Ralph Davis, entering the land, conquering the land, dividing the land, and retaining the land. And so we are in entering the land in Joshua 1 through 4. Joshua 1, God affirms to Joshua, I will be with you. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. I will be with you. In Joshua 2, we see this confession from Rahab the harlot. All the nations fear you. We have melted before you because we heard what God has done. Then we, the crossing is in chapter 3. Then we have the finishing or the memorial of the crossing in chapter 4. Now, the problem is very clear from this chapter. It is being forgetful of God's mighty works. It was a problem for Israel. They forgot what Yahweh had done for them. And usually when we forget the might and power of Yahweh, it leads to a lack of faith in that mighty God. It leads us to making God in our image rather than recognizing we have been made in his image. And I surmise the problem of forgetfulness is a problem for you and I as well. We often forget who we are in Christ. We often forget what Christ has done for us. That's why Christians need the gospel every week as well. Certainly unbelievers need the gospel. What we Christians need to be reminded of what Christ has done and who we are in him based upon his mighty work that he did for us. We need to remember. We need to be reminded. And this section teaches us the importance of memorial. And the 12 stones provide the memorial for the people concerning that crossing. So the main idea is memorial. These 12 stones are going to be that memorial for the people to be reminded of God's great mighty works. And we'll look at this idea under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the memorial of the Jordan crossing, verses 1 through 9. And then secondly, we'll see the fear of the Jordan crossing in verses 10 through 24. So the memorial of the Jordan crossing, verses 1 through 9, and then the fear of the Jordan crossing, verses 10 through 24. So let's first look at the memorial of the Jordan crossing in verses 1 through 9. In verses 1 through 5, we see the 12 stones that are going to be used as that memorial. And again, it, is the, it goes with chapter 3. There is this Jordan that is in the way of the people of God. They've wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. The second generation is about to enter in, but there is this giant river. And we see in chapter 3, verse 15, the size of it at the time, uh, the, 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 the breadth of it at that time. Uh, it says in verse 15, And those who bore the ark came to Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water. For the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. So it was high. It was vast. It was not an easy thing to cross. People didn't have bridges or planes or boats or that sort of thing to be able to get across. So how is God going to fulfill his promise to the people when there is this natural barrier in the way? Well, God says... I'm going to do a great miracle before you. I'm going to show you uh, who I am. I'm going to, it's going to be a sign to you that I will fight for you. Uh, God is going to show that he will be with them. And in 310, he does say, by this, you shall know that the living God is among you. I will be with you. I will help you. God is giving them that encouragement. He knows that the people are prone to being afraid 
afraid of rivers and afraid of the Anakim and the giants in the land. Because the first generation was afraid of the giants in the land. They didn't trust in the promises of God. They didn't trust in the might and power of God. And God is pleased to give them a sign. Isn't that the goodness of our God to give them that sign before they enter in? Here's this mighty thing I'm going to do for you. And it's going to be an encouragement. It's going to be a help for you as you enter into the land. Look what I did with the Jordan River. Go, you know, destroy some Canaanites. God will be with you and God will fight for you. And what it teaches as well is that God's miraculous might isn't going to happen all the time. It's not going to be in this way all the time. And we'll see that more with the purpose of the 12 stones. So Joshua, uh, as the, 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 so the priests have entered in, uh, the, there's dry land. They're bearing the Ark of the Covenant, sign of God being with them. God is near to them. The Ark of the Covenant was a sign of God's presence for the old covenant people. And he is the one who is in the midst of the Jordan. So they enter in, the people are able to cross and so then jo uh, Joshua then gives this command, or God gives a command to Joshua, and then Joshua gives a command to the people. And notice in verses 1 through 3, we see the command God gives. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. There's a precursor of this in 3.12. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men. What it signifies is a unified nation. It signifies a unified people. As we're going to see tonight in Nahum, it was a time when it was divided. That is, only Judah was left. The northern kingdoms were taken away uh, by Assyria, but we'll talk more about that this evening. But for now, they are united. It highlights the 12 tribes of Israel. They're all united together. 12 men shall come and grab these 12 massive giant stones. And so God commands Joshua, and then Joshua commands the people. This is a pattern throughout the book. God says something to Joshua, and then Joshua then says something to the people. And one of the purposes or sub-purposes of the Jordan crossing is that the people might fear Joshua. The people might revere Joshua. The people might trust Joshua and listen to him. Because Moses is a towering figure. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant and he died you might surmise there could be a power vacuum. You might surmise the people might not trust Joshua. But God's promise to Joshua is, I will be with you, not just in the fight, but I will be with you and that the people will revere you as well. So the Jordan crossing is something that is good uh, for Joshua as well. We see that in 3.7 and we see that in 4.14 as well, so it's foreshadowing the fear of Joshua. He com God commands Joshua, Joshua commands the people. And so he says in verse four, call the 12 men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross over before the ark of the Lord, your God into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder 
according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. So God commands, Joshua commands, the people do that very thing in verses 8 and 9. Then we see the purpose for these stones in verses 6 through 9. That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Again, the mighty acts of God need to be remembered because they're not going to happen all the time in this way. The Jordan River crossing was a one-time special event. The crossing of the Red Sea was a one-time special event. How often God points back to those very things. We're even going to see here, he points back to the Red Sea as well. And brethren, I do believe God mightily saves sinners, but isn't he doing it invisibly? Isn't he doing it as the word goes forth? We don't always see a flash and a light shine. I don't have a, uh, you know, a, a, a hologram above your head saying elect or not or saved or not. I don't know. God, we certainly see one's confession. We certainly hear one's confession and see one's life. But the way in which God saves is so very uh, ordinary. It's so very, it's a miraculous thing, removing a heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh, but it's not quite like watching a giant river, you know, dry up. You see, it works so, God works so mightily, but invisibly. There aren't going to be many Jordan, if any, Jordan-type events in the life of God's people. So what must they do? Remember. And that's what these stones are for. So they can teach their children about it as well. Kids are going for a stroll, and Junior looks up at those giant stones. They must be pretty big in the way in which they're set up. And he says, Dad, what in the world does that mean? Dad, what is this for? What is the purpose of these stones? And so we see, verse 7, Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. You can be remind, you can remind one's children about the Jordan miracle. That's what its purpose was. It was so the people would never forget. It was so the people would never forget and that they would fear God most high based upon what he did. He parted that Jordan. He made it dry up so that the people of God could finally enter into the promised land. It was a message for the children. It was an assurance for Israel about their life in the land, uh, but it must be remembered as well. And so that's its purpose as a sign for future generations of God's mighty work. And then we see the people obey in verses 8 and 9. Again, as we're, it's unfolding, thankfully, every time we see the people obey, for the most part, But there is that perhaps will they obey because there is a new leader, but they do. Verse 8, and the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over, uh, over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. God commanded, Joshua commanded, the people obey. There's going to be a memorial set up at Gilgal. This will also be important later on in Joshua chapter 22. Uh, But for now, uh, they're going to set that up there. So there's the memorial that will be on the banks of the river. But there's also going to be another memorial within the river. 
That's verse 9. Verse 9, it says, Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. There's going to be a sign on the banks. There's going to be a sign in the river as well about God's mighty work, about God's nearness, about God's protection, about God's miraculous work with that Jordan River crossing. And what's interesting is John Gill and Matthew Henry think that when John the Baptist points to stones in Matthew 3, 9, he's pointing to these very stones. God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. So it was a memorial for the people, God's might, God's power. Clearly, in John the Baptist's day, the people of God had forgotten. They had forgotten God's might. They had forgotten God's power. They had forgotten God's goodness. And God is about to, John is preparing the way for the Messiah to come to save his people from their sins. So that's the purpose of the memorial. That is the memorial of the Jordan. And as we consider that, let us remember, dear brethren, God's redemptive acts. We must always remember Christ. We must always be reminded of Jesus and what he has done. I didn't see it happen. I wasn't there on that day physically and actually, but I believe it to be true that it happened. I believe as God has revealed in his word that Christ really did live and die, was buried and rose again. I believe it to be true because on that day, the salvation of God's people came. The salvation of sinners came. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and it comes in Christ Jesus, God who dwelt among us in the Son, the Son who takes on human flesh to die for his people. That's why the gospel must be preached. That's why the word of God must be proclaimed each and every Lord's day, because that's where we find our strength. We find our strength in Christ. And if churches don't preach Christ's redemptive works, how does that help anybody? If it's always about, here's how you can have a better life, here's how you can do this, that, or the other, with no Christ and him crucified, what benefit is that to anybody? It's no better than flicking on talk shows and watching them. It's no better than you know, paying a guru to help you in your life. The blessed thing about the church of Christ is that we come and we recall Christ's redemptive works. And we believe that Christ is still working through the preaching of his word. We believe he's actually operating through the preaching of the gospel and as the spirit goes forth. And if there is no gospel, if there is no Christ in him crucified, what benefit is it to anyone? And so we must be reminded of it, of what Christ has done. It must be told about what God has done. And we must be reminded ourselves as well, right? We so often throughout the week can forget Christ and him crucified. At least I know I can, maybe not you, but I know I can struggle with that very thing. And that's why it's good to come to church. Because someone will hopefully tell you Christ died for sinners. Christ lived, died, and rose again. Because we are so very forgetful. Even when you're reading your Bible, I confess, sometimes I'm tired and sometimes the words begin to meld together. And so we need to be reminded on this day about Christ and him crucified. Yes, daily, but hopefully, and more importantly, weekly as well. So we must remember Christ and him crucified. But also, 
it's not wrong to remember your salvation. You might not know the specific day or the hour. Some people do know the specific day or the hour. Not everybody does know that specific day or the hour. But it's not wrong to be reminded about our salvation. But what Christ has done for us when he saved us, around what time he did that very thing, what we once were and what we are now in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we wallow in what we once were, but we praise God for the salvation out of what we once were, for the salvation that we have in him, that we are no longer our own, but we've been bought with a price, that we are Christ and he is ours. May we never forget that. May we never forget that, certainly for, our, for it's good for our salvation, but also in our times of sanctification. Brethren, sanctification, which is the Christian life, is Christ's work in you. I know in the Christian life there are commands that we are called to keep, but how do we keep those commands, dear brethren? Christ's work in us. And I suggest if you struggle with a certain sin and a certain proclivity, you take that to God most high and say, Lord God Almighty, you said you would be with me. You said you would help me. I know that I'm forgiven in Christ. I know that I have the spirit. Now help me to stand firm against that very thing. For it is God who works in us both to will and to do. Do not forget that, dear brethren. Davis says, we observe a certain assumption operating in 4, 1 through 10, namely that the greatest enemy of faith may be forgetfulness. Just as in a marriage, the real threat may not be infidelity, but simply a slow process of forgetting and a gradual failure to remember the preciousness of the other person. May we never forget the preciousness of Christ. So that is the memorial of the Jordan crossing. Let's then look secondly at the fear of the Jordan crossing in verses 10 through 24. And notice in verses 10 through 14, we see how they do fear Joshua. Notice the people are prepared for battle. The priests obey. The people obey. We see a lot of obedience unfolding here. Uh, Verse 10, so the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua uh, to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded, that is, until the people crossed over, until the people came into the land, which God or Moses gave charge to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31, to cross over, to enter into that land, uh, it is fulfilled. And the people hurried and crossed over in, at the end of verse 10. And then verse 11, Then it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over, the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. So God with him, God in the presence of them. Then verse 12, and the men of Reuben, the men of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spoken to them. Remember those three liked the Eastern side. They wanted to have their inheritance, not actually in the actual land of Canaan, but they wanted to have it on the Eastern side of the Jordan. And Moses and the Lord said, that's perfectly fine. But there's one thing you have to do. You have to help your fellow brethren fight off the Canaanites. And once you're done fighting off the Canaanites and dispossessing the land, then you can have your possession on the other side. And so again, at chapter one of Joshua, Joshua asked them, hey, you followed Moses. Will you follow me? I mean, they could have reneged. I mean, they could have said, yeah, Moses is dead. 
Who are you, Joshua? But they still follow Joshua anyway. And so we see their obedience. We see their preparation for battle. Uh, they're ready to enter in and to deal with what is coming. They cross over armed. Uh, verse 13, about 40,000, that is 40,000 of those three prepared for war, crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. Now, God will fight for them. They cannot win unless God fights for them. But they still must fight, right? They must still grab their swords and they must still grab their shields and their bows and arrows and shoot the Canaanites and stab the Canaanites and deal with the Canaanites. They must still engage in that fight. But it's God who fights for them. Is that a picture of the Christian walk? I mean, how do we fight, dear brethren? We fight in Christ. We fight according to the armor of the Lord. But what does Paul say in Ephesians 6? You put on all those things. You put on the, the, the helmet of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and, and the sword of the spirit. And the, I'm probably getting them all wrong. I should probably know them off by heart, but that's okay. But you know, Ephesians 6, let's just read it to make sure we actually get it all right. But, but he's saying you in Christ. And even the first thing he commands as he goes into that section, be strong in the Lord. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We pray to him, Lord, help me fight against this certain sin. And then guess what? You have to go fight that certain sin. I mean, we don't just let go and let God. I mean, they didn't walk in with no shields and swords and, and you know, bows and arrows and tanks and that sort of thing. And we're like, we got you, Canaanites, because God's with us. God is with them, but they still must fight. Let's, let's get the actual uh, armor right. Verse 14 of Ephesians 6. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Brother, how do we put that on? A, by the word of God. B, being at church to hear the word of God. Ephesians 4, I think, highlights that very thing. That language of equipping in verse 12 is actually more preparation. Preparation for battle. Preparation for the fight. Preparation for the sin that you're going to have to deal with day by day. We are do it by the word of God. And prayer. Read your Bible, pray every day is the thing that you need in the Christian walk, is the thing that helps you in the Christian fight, because it reminds us of Christ. It reminds us of who he is. It reminds us of what he has done. And God really does work in his word to strengthen his people. Yes, we must, you know, gouge out eyes and cut off hands figuratively. I know there's someone out there who might take it literally. There was a church father who did take that uh, sort of command literally, uh, but it is a figurative thing. It means to put to death, to fight, to battle. That is our Christian warfare. It's fighting against remaining corruption. It's fighting against the temptation of the devil and the temptation of the world. And so it's interesting, right from that, we see in, uh, from chapter 4, uh, uh, verse 13 of, of Joshua that God will fight for them, but they must fight. That is a picture of our Christian walk. Christ has won the battle, and we fight in him. So back to chapter 4. 
And then verse 14, we see that the leader is feared among the people. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. This is seen in the people's obedience. 4, 1, 4, 4, 4, 8, 4, 10. They do what Joshua says. They fear him. They trust him. They, they, they recognize that God is with him, and he'll be the one to lead them into battle against the Canaanites. It affirms what God had said in Joshua 1. And again, the reason is, the reason they need to fear God and fear Joshua is because the first generation was fearful. Brethren, they didn't have Gen- uh, Joshua 4 like we do, right? <laughs> we have Joshua 4, and we have Joshua 3, and we have Joshua 5 through 24. They didn't have all that. And so they need to, they heard what Joshua said, Joshua, the Lord speaks to Joshua and then Joshua conveys to the people in chapter five, the commander of the Lord's army appears to Joshua. He doesn't appear to everybody else, does he? And so they have to trust in what he says. They have to trust in Joshua's word that he really is the leader of the Lord's army. So they fear They obey the one who is the successor of Moses, who acts on behalf of God to the people. They do listen to him, and that's what God does by way of the Jordan crossing. But more important than fearing Joshua is fearing the Lord, and that's what we see in verses 15 through 24. We see the crossing completed in verses 15 through 18. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The miracle is complete. God had done a mighty work for the people. He is with them. He will fight for them. They must not remember that very thing. Then we see in verses 19 through 24, that fear, the purpose uh, proper, the, the main purpose of the Jordan crossing. Verse 19. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. I didn't know this before I studied this, and I asked it at our Wednesday night Bible study, so hopefully you all remember who were there on Wednesday night. Notice that day, 10th day of the first month. What it says in Exodus 12, the 10th day of the first month is the preparation of the Passover. And day 14 is the day they partake of the Passover, and in Joshua 5, they partake of the Passover on the 14th day. What he's doing here, and we'll see that with the Red Sea as well, is drawing our attention 40 years in the past. That is, as God brought the people up out of the land of Egypt, so now he is bringing them into the promised land. We're going from Exodus to the promised land. We're going from the Red Sea to the Jordan crossing. Even the date here is a sign and a remembrance. Days do help us remember. And thankfully, every Sunday is a reminder of Christ's resurrection. Every Sunday is a reminder of Christ's redemptive work. And thankfully, brethren, even under the new covenant, God stoops to our nature and gives us signs, doesn't he? They're called baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
They really are signs. We see dying and rising again. We see the cleansing of sin. That's why when someone gets baptized, be there. It's not just a means of grace for that person, but it's a means of grace for all those people that get to see it. There it is, a visible picture of the gospel, of what Christ has done. And also the Lord's Supper. We do it monthly, a monthly reminder of Christ's body broken and blood shed. Again, don't absent yourself from that as well. So we have those new covenant signs and the old covenant people had their signs as well. And the day was one of them and the stones helped them remember as well. He goes on to say in verse 20, and those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel saying, when your children ask their fathers in time to come saying, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know saying, it's like he wants us to remember, right? He's repeating it twice. So we pay attention. He says, when your child, uh, what, uh, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, when he dried up before us until we had crossed over. It's so that we remember. It's so that they remember. It's so that they remember the Red Sea. Again, we're going from the Red Sea to the Jordan crossing, from out of the place of bondage to the place of freedom, from out of the Exodus to the promised land. It had been 40 years, brethren, 400 years since Abraham, and God is fulfilling his promise. I know in verse, uh, verses 15 through 18, they all step over. I mean, that is a great day for them. They've entered into the promised land finally. Again, we probably glaze over and don't read it as well as we should, but God's promises are sure. God's faithfulness is sure. And that just them stepping in is an affirmation of that. And these stones are an affirmation of that as well. They must be reminded. Davis says, apparently this sort of miracle will be infrequent. Yahweh's standard method of retaining his people's fidelity is not by frequent and dazzling displays of power, but by faithful witness and teaching of those particular acts in which he had already demonstrated his care for his own. And brethren, even in the new covenant era, even as you read the book of Acts, I know somebody out there is thinking, well, what about the book of Acts with all those signs and wonders and the outpouring of the spirit? Brethren, I believe in the outpouring of the spirit. I'm thankful for that great day of Pentecost. But Pentecost is a redemptive historical act. The outpouring of the agent of new creation on this world from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And guess how the book of Acts unfolds with all the outpourings? Jerusalem, Acts 2, Samaria, or Judea, uh, uh, Judea, Samaria, in Acts 8, or Acts 8, I do believe is actually, I think it's implied that the spirit falls. Acts 10, Gentiles. And then Acts 19, which is the outpouring of the spirit at the ends of the earth. It is God spreading his presence to the ends of the earth. And what's interesting in the book of Acts, miracles subside. It starts off with signs and wonders and miracles, but miracles subside. Read it again. 
And watch how the emphasis is always on the preaching of the word of God. Because we need to be reminded of what Christ has done. He's not always going to do signs and wonders, and for the most part, he's not going to do that. He is not going to dazzle and have lightning shoot through the the roof, that sort of thing. What happens is God speaks in his word, and God saves by his word, and God sanctifies by his word in an ordinary way. I think Davis is absolutely right. We need to be reminded from the Red Sea to the, the, the Jordan River and Christ in him crucified. And then notice verse 24, fear, the fear of Canaan and the fear of Israel, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. What was one of the things that Moses sang in Exodus 15, 16? In verse 15, he says that all the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased, that the nations would fear. Guess what Rahab's confession is? We heard about all that God did with the Red Sea. We heard about what God did to Sion and Og, the king of the Amorites, and our hearts melted. And she is the only one who found refuge in God. She is the only one who found refuge rather than dying in her sin. She found refuge by faith in that God, finding refuge in the Lord God of Israel. And in chapter 5, 1, we see their hearts melt again as well after they hear about the drying up of the waters uh, in chapter 5, verse 1. So it's all that all Canaan might fear, but also that Israel might fear, that you may fear the Lord your God in the end of verse 24. Though the Anakim may be gigantic and strong, though they might have big spears and be jacked and have big muscles, don't worry about them. There is someone that you need to fear more. There's someone you need to have a greater trust in than them, one who is mighty and strong. God needs to be your fear and your dread and nobody else. And this is what that memorial was to help them with. Gill says, who upon sight of them would call to mind the power and goodness of God, which would serve to keep an awe of his majesty on their mind, a due reverence of him and his greatness, and engage them to fear, serve, and worship him, who by such acts as these had abundantly showed himself to be the only true and living God, and the covenant God of them his people, Israel. It wasn't just so that Canaan would fear, it's that the people would fear and recognize the God who is on their side and the God that they ought to obey. I admit, dear brethren, I struggled with it when I was prepping this a couple months ago, and I still struggle with it today. What does it mean to fear? What What does that actually look like? Certainly, as we think of the word fear, and we're going to see more fear tonight, to be afraid, to tremble, to be in awe, to recognize someone or something that is greater than you. Isn't that the emphasis of fear? Someone who is mighty and terrifying and terrible. It's not wrong to say that God is mighty and terrifying because he absolutely is. And I think the uh, theologians throughout the past have distinguished between a servile fear and a filial fear. 
fearing the might and power of God to the one's detriment. Fearing God and the judgment he brings versus fearing God and who he is and finding your strength in him. A loving fear, a trust as a son or daughter loves and fears their father. But we must fear. And I surmise in our time and day and time that we are more flippant than fearful. We treat God perhaps like us to make him less scary. We like to make him less than he actually is to make him less scary. But we must worship him as God and not man. What does he even say in Hebrews 12 in the New Testament? Why do we worship God acceptably, dear brethren? For he is a consuming fire. And brethren, our God never changes. He remains a consuming fire. And so when we come to him and worship him, we ought to do so with great joy, but with trembling as well. That we, the redeemed, would know our God by faith, and that we would love our God by faith and revere our God by faith. That is the command. Let us fear the Lord our God forever. Fear who he is. Fear and recognize that he created you. You didn't create yourself. You didn't create him, but he created you. And every single person owes him worship. God doesn't owe us anything. God, even at creation, in his goodness, said to Adam, here's all these wonderful things you get to enjoy. Here, be my vice regent. Spread my glory. And Adam fails in that very thing. And he points, uh, Adam points ahead to the last Adam, who is Christ the Lord and Christ the King. But we don't owe him anything. Yet, he is pleased to give us good gifts, temporal gifts, and he is pleased to save He is pleased to save sinners like you and I. He's pleased to save wretches like you and I. And the only way to flee the judgment to come, flee uh, God's terrifying wrath being poured out on someone forever, is in Jesus Christ. Because on that cross, Christ bore the wrath of God in the stead of his people. Christ bore the judgment of God in the stead of his people, that there might be life everlasting in him. And how do we flee that judgment to come? It is by faith, believing Christ lived, died, and rose again. And if you're an unbeliever here today, the only way to flee the wrath to come is in Christ. Find mercy, find forgiveness for your sins, believe on him, and you most certainly shall be saved. So remember, fear, fear and remembrance go together. If we forget God's mighty acts, Boy, how should we fear him? But if we remember God's mighty acts, why should we fear man? And fear also manifests for the Christian, and really for all, but especially for the Christian, by doing what God says. What's the end of our life, dear brethren? What's the root and purpose of all that we do? Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fear God and keep his commandments. Again, fear the Lord above men. Faith and fear go together. We believe in what God has done through Christ for our salvation. We believe that Christ lived, died, and rose again. We believe he is our master, and we ought to do what he commands and he says. The Christian life, we must obey God, and as we obey God, it may lead to unfun, painful situations. 
when unbelievers try to intimidate, when unbelievers try to coerce, when unbelievers try to manipulate, we must obey God rather than man. We must fear God rather than man. And thankfully, the God we fear will lead us into that promised land. God will lead us to that celestial city. God will lead us to that place where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. And will he not do it as he has said? May we remember, may we fear our God who is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we confess we do not fear you as much as we should. We confess so often we do not revere you as much as we ought. So often we think of our ways rather than your ways. So often we desire to do the things we wish rather than the things you command. Please forgive us for this and thank you that all of the sins of your people are forgiven in Christ. Thank that he is our Lord and he is our Savior. He is our King. He is our mighty warrior who defeated sin who crushed the head of the seed of the serpent, who is the one who became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Thank you that he is this Messiah and that in him we have life. Thank you that you do, we do, you do not owe us anything, but we owe you worship. And forgive us for our failures in this. And again, thank you for forgiveness. And so we ask as we are saved and redeemed and called forth out of darkness, may we worship, may we remember, may we fear you. Please forgive us for our failures in so many ways. Help us by your spirit to do what is right and pleasing in your sight. Help us by your spirit to do that which is good according to what you command. Have you not said these are good things? Have you not promised to help us and never leave us nor forsake us? Will you please help us now? Help us to prize the gathering. Help us to prize your word. Help us to be faithful in our homes. Help us to be faithful in our jobs. Help us to be faithful according to what you've, uh, the, the places you've put us in. And please again forgive us. But give us the strength we need. Thank you for your long suffering. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your goodness. And may we fear you. We also pray that if any here today do not know you, please save them. We pray that the fear and dread of you would be upon them, that they might flee it in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you are mighty to save. Thank you that in all things you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ.